0: Luke chapter number one, we're going to go through an Advent series over the next couple weeks entitled God of the impossible. Have you ever attempted something in your life that you thought was impossible? Now, 38 years ago on December 7th, is that correct? Someone tried something that was impossible, right? Roger and Kathy came here. So we have our anniversary this past week. This is happy anniversary to Lighthouse this week. And uh, really coming here with two girls, attempting to do something that, I mean, come on, if we were all to go out to a a city and say we're going to start a church, seems somewhat impossible, right? And I'm sure you thought maybe it was impossible. Maybe Kathy did. (laughs) Maybe one of you did, right? Uh, I still wonder how it you still wonder, yeah. But, I mean, think about it. You couldn't have planned this to happen 38 years later to have a light in this community. And, uh, but God did something that was impossible, right? Exactly. And, and through our li- throughout our lives, we have times we face impossibilities, things we think this cannot never happen. But we have a God who is the God of the impossible in the first chapter of Luke, we see two couples facing difficult, impossible, and improbable situations. First, we see in the first part of Luke chapter 1, an old couple, advanced in years. And that Jewish couple was named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Then the other couple we see, or particularly Mary, we see at the end of this chapter, Mary and Joseph is engaged, and they're only teenagers, right? And God does something impossible. In their life and so we're gonna actually go through verse 5 through chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 5 through verse 23 this morning let's start with a word of prayer father we open up your word remembering that your words are the words of life so breathe life into this place into our hearts and to, to maybe an individual this, this morning that doesn't have the life that's found in Christ, God, I pray that they will find it in repentance and faith and coming to you, receiving the gift of life. And I pray that you will help us as believers in here to, to celebrate and understand who you are, the God of the impossible. So work in our hearts in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to study this week, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a Jewish Levite, but he was basically just a normal Jewish man. And she was a normal Jewish woman living in the first century. And he, was, he would have served in the temple at various times throughout the year. At the time of Christ, there were about 18,000 priests in Israel. And they lived throughout Israel. They would come together at different times throughout the year. In fact, there was 24 different groups. Those 18,000 priests were divided into, or they called 24 orders. And he was of the eighth order. We're going to learn this morning. He was the order of Abijah. And each priest would come twice a year for a week, and they would serve in the temple. And basically, they would slaughter animals all week long. They just were bloody the whole week. They were butchers, basically, is what you were as a priest. And he had other things that you would do there. And they would do that twice a year, and then they would also come at Passover. In fact, all the 18,000 priests would come at Passover because they, they were slaughtering th- hundreds of thousands of, of animals. And so here you have an average couple that's serving the Lord in the temple. In most of their life, they just did this and served the Lord, but they also faced some very difficult, and you might even say impossible, circumstances. Verse 5, we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So in verse 5, we read that it was in the days of Herod, king of Judah. The first difficulty and impossible situation they faced was they were living under the rule of a crazy, diabolical king. Right? If you remember, Herod was the one who went to Bethlehem or sent soldiers to Bethlehem and slaughtered the babies two years of age and under. Why? Because he was threatened by a baby that people were calling a king. So this guy was set up as the king in this area of Jerusalem and Judea. He was the king from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was actually an Edomite, so he was not Jewish, but he took on the Jewish religion and the Jewish throne, but he was not the king they were all hoping for. He wasn't the Messiah, the Jewish, true Jewish Messiah. They were all praying would come. In fact, he was very, very cruel. The Roman Empire set him up to rule over this area and to kind of, to prove himself. He built a temple in Jerusalem. It was an amazing temple called Herod's Temple, and he did other construction projects as well. But he was a cruel, pretend Jewish king. And so they all longed for the Messiah to come. But it seemed like an impossibility. The Roman Empire was strong. and It was over the entire world of that part of the world. And and they had a king who was cruel. But for Zechariah and for Elizabeth, they had their own personal impossibilities. Because now they were old. And throughout their whole life, they desired to have a child. Not only was it impossible throughout their life, but now because they were old, it was utterly impossible. And this society, like many other cultures, if you didn't have a child, you would have had a stigma upon you. In fact, the Jewish people believe that that if if you were childless, maybe you were under God's judgment or maybe there was a sin in your life. So you can imagine the pressure that would have been upon the women back then in this culture, your identity in this society, was tied to the fact that you had children. So if you didn't have children, you were seen as less of a woman. And probably in this kind of situation, as many times happens, and when a woman is not able to have a child, maybe there was miscarriages and so there was loss and things like that. So you can imagine the sorrow and difficulty that she faced. In fact, if we read in verse number 7, verse 6 and 7, we said, says, verse 6 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So they seem to be in a hopeless, impossible situation. You know, there are times when we face situations that seem impossible, right? Very, very difficult. In fact, I look out this group of people right now, and I imagine that probably most of us have something in our life that we're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know if I can do this. Maybe you have a child who's away from the Lord or, or a relative you've been praying for for years to come to Christ. And it seems impossible. Like When are they going to come to Christ? Or maybe you have a marriage and it's on the rocks. And you're thinking, I just don't think this is ever going to be a good marriage. Or it could be you have a medical diagnosis and you have an uncertain future. Or, or maybe you're thinking, I'm in college, I need to pay for college. So how is that going to happen? I don't even know how I'm going to be able to come back next semester. Or or maybe you have a soul-gripping sin or, or an addiction that has been beating you down for the past couple years. So we all have circumstances that, humanly speaking, they seem impossible. So how should you respond When you face an impossible situation, how did Zechariah and Elizabeth? How did they respond when they were faced with an impossible circumstance? Well, first of all, we're going to see that they walked with God in righteousness. How do you respond when faced with the impossible walk with God in righteousness? Look at verse number six. Verse six says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They had been longing for a child their entire lives. And now she was old. Some say maybe she was in her 60s or maybe 70s. Some say that's not very old. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) depends on your perspective. But either way, she was past her childbearing years. And you can imagine throughout her life, she probably had the question, which is a very painful question, for someone like her who wants children, that is not able to have children, why don't you have children? Like, how many children do you have? Oh, you know, and that that's painful. You can imagine the pain that she would have gone through, maybe even the thoughts in her mind, or maybe even people would have said, what's, what's wrong with you? Right? Do you have a sin in your life? Like, something happening? Did you, did you do something? And let me, I guess, let me pause, because sometimes we can think like this, Right? When we face an impossible situation, we can sometimes question God's love for us. We can sometimes wonder, what's wrong with me? Like, why is God doing this to me? Maybe I'm under God's judgment. And, and it could be actually, if you if you are living in sin, that there's consequences to sin, right? But generally, when we face situations that are difficult, sometimes impossible, we can't allow those lies from Satan to fuel the fire of doubt and discouragement. So if you're in an impossible situation, difficult situation. Don't allow Satan to beat you down and question God's love for you, Christian. God loves you. God is sovereign. And what Elizabeth will discover years later is that God's plan was better than her plan, right? She would have wanted in her 20s and her 30s to be able to have that child, but God had something better for her, had something different for her, had a greater opportunity I mean, think about it because god had her weight she was able to experience some amazing things right she was able to have god do a miracle within her body she was able to give birth to a boy that would announce the coming of the messiah in fact if you remember that the angel appeared as well to mary and said hey you can be confident that god is, is working in you and doing a miracle in you because your cousin also had a baby and is going is to have a baby, and she has advanced in years. So she was able to encourage her cousin Mary in that way. And you can imagine that Elizabeth, her whole life, maybe had thoughts in her mind, why is this happening? Why, why can't we have a child? So how did they respond? I mean, what does the scripture say was their response throughout their life to this kind of impossible situation? What does it say in verse six? It says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So notice their response was what? To walk with God in righteousness. What I want you to notice first that they were righteous before God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean they were righteous before God? Well, it means that God made them righteous based upon faith, right? Sometimes people have a faulty idea that the Old Testament saints were saved by works and we are saved by faith. That is not true. So Zechariah and Elizabeth were Old Testament saints before Christ, right? So they're Old Testament saints. They were made righteous by God. Well, how is that possible? Because God gave them his righteousness as they trusted in him. And so We look back to Christ. He's the object of our faith. And the Old Testament saints look forward and they had their object of their faith was God, right? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In fact, the kids this past week and true trackers learned verses that was exactly about this topic. Any kids in here think you remember the, the verses from this week that you memorized? Anyone want to try to go for it? Okay, so the question was, can following the law make me right with God? Do you remember what it is? Oh, boy, here we go. Pressure's on. We won't make you do it out loud. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So the idea is, is that you can't follow the law to be a good person and be a good enough person to be saved. It's only by God's work, his grace in you. And if the law doesn't make me righteous, that was another question they learned this week. If the law doesn't make me righteous, what does? We know a person is not justified by the works of the law. So whether you're the Old Testament, whether you're the New Testament, it doesn't really matter. Everyone is justified by faith. So they are Old Testament saints, and they believed God, and God gave them righteousness. And so verse 6 says they walked blamelessly righteously in the commandments of the Lord. So the idea is that God made them righteous and enabled them to live a righteous life. It doesn't mean they were perfect, it doesn't mean they walked around as these perfect saints. What it means is that the the result of God's work in their life was that they had a daily desire and activity to follow the the words of God, the commands of God. You could say it this way, their response to their impossible situation was just take another righteous step. God made them righteous. And what did they do when they faced this lifelong trial day after day, desire after desire, prayer after prayer? They kept walking with God. They just took the next right step. I can imagine Elizabeth would be packing up Zechariah's bags go to the temple to serve as a priest. You can imagine that she was packing it up and maybe she looked at him and would say, you've served faithfully all these years. Zechariah, why hasn't God given us a child? Like you've been such a, such a good priest. And I can imagine Zechariah saying something like this, Elizabeth, keep trusting God no matter what. God is good. Just, just take the next right step. Just do what God wants us to do. Today And such was the character of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They, they took faithful, righteous steps with God, even when they faced impossibilities. Many times in life, we can, we can face impossible situations, right? I think about someone who's running and maybe they're in a race or maybe they're training. There's times when you're running and you're training and you don't feel like going anymore, right? And you just got to push through. You just got to do what you got to do to get to the finish line. Sometimes it kind of feels like that in life, doesn't it? Like you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't want to get out of bed today. Right? And you just got to get out of bed. And you just got to sit down and get your Bible out. And you got to read your Bible. Sometimes you don't feel like coming to church, right? You all made it. So for those listening, no. But you have to get up and get ready and go and do the next right thing God has called you to do. And so how should you respond when faced with the impossible? Walk with God in righteousness and next talk to God with humility. Look down in verse number eight through verse 10. The scripture says, verse eight, now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Going into the holy place, into the temple to offer incense was a privilege. Actually, you only got once in a lifetime. And how did he get it? He got it by lottery, right? He had the Jewish lottery and he won. The priestly lottery, actually. So he was able to go in. This was his time. You think about it. His entire life, he's always missed out. He lost it, right? His numbers didn't line up. Now he got it. And now he gets to go into the temple. And so this would have been a very exciting thing for him. Like this would have been a a very thrilling thing because it's a privilege, but also a very fearful thing. You're going into the presence, and their mind was going to the presence of God to offer this offering or this the coals on the altar of incense there. What does it mean to offer coals on the altar of incense? Well, three times a day people would come and gather in the temple and they'd have public prayers. In the morning and evening prayer would coincide with this offering inside the temple. So what he would have done is he would have got a basin of uh, some kind of basin and he would have walked up to the brazen altar and if you remember what it was like, there was, there's was a 30 foot by 30 foot bronze altar, 15 foot high. So he'd walked up those steps. He would have scooped down in there and got some coals into his basin. And if you remember what they did in that, that altar, of uh, the bronze altar out there in front of the temple, so they would make sacrifices all day long, right? So, I mean, you can imagine the smell that was coming up from that. He puts the coals in there. He takes that so he had the coals. <clears throat> he had the incense there as well. He would have walked down. He would have gone to the front of the temple, of Herod's temple there. And he would have stood and think about it how how large and looming that would have been in front of him. In fact, it's kind of a replica there. So you can see how small the people are compared to the temple. So just imagine him about to go in here. Think about the, just the idea of walking into this grand temple and at the back of the temple. There was the Holy of holy or the most holy place. The main room was the holy place. And so he would have walked in through the first part of the, um, this curtains there and he would gone into the holy place and, he would have seen there, as you can see up there, he would have seen the, uh, um, the the table of presents. And he would have been able to see the other articles in there. It had been a very elaborate room, actually. Herod's temple was reported to be a very beautiful area. And uh, <clears throat> he would have seen the lampstand. So think about just the awe that he would have had of coming into this place. And actually, in the Jewish uh, mindset there, the altar of incense was a part of the holy of holies. It wasn't inside the holy of holies; it was right before it. But the idea was, it was so close that it was it was a part of it. In fact, Hebrews chapter number uh, nine, verses three and four says this: Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. It's the holy of holies, which had the golden altar of incense in the gold cover ark of the covenant. So the idea is they were they were so closely connected. It's almost as if it was in there. Okay. So, when he's going to offer this, and he's going to put these coals and this incense on here, think about it. I and mean, this, hes has this fear and this awe that's in his heart. He's going toward the presence of God. Just imagine him walking in here solemnly, slowly to do this. What was the purpose of the, this altar of incense? Well, this altar represented the prayers of God's people going up to the Lord. So, the idea is you take the coals from the the altar where the animals were sacrificed, and you're taking them and you're offering them there to God. So God has forgiven us for our sins. We made sacrifices. We're trusting in Him, and now I take the coals from that. And The idea is because God has forgiven us, He can hear our prayers, and so the the, the smoke arises as a sweet smelling savor to God. God can listen. He hears our prayers and He enjoys our prayers. So and you remember all these things that's happening in this temple. The this, these pieces of furniture, these rituals, they're all just shadows, right? They're all just pictures of the reality, right? That's not the prayers. That smoke going up isn't actually prayers going up, okay? It's a picture of the fact that God actually listens to our prayers. We can remember that God hears our prayers, Israel, because we sacrifice to him, and we're trusting in him, and he is the one who forgives us and redeems us. He's our redeemer. So I'm up here, and I have lights shining on me, right? And a little light shining back on you off my forehead. But but also behind me, you can see shadows, right? And, and the shadows are just an outline or, or dark reflected image of who I am. Like, that's not me. That shadow is not me, right? This is me. And so that's the same thing with this. And sometimes people get confused with that, right? They really desire that for a church like this or something. Like, oh, give us the shadows. give the... Like, we have the reality. We have Jesus. So we don't need to, to, to highlight the, the shadows and the, the pictures. So the temple and the sacrifices and the altars, they were just shadows and pictures of the reality of what, who Christ is and what he was doing. In fact, one of the passages in Psalms says this, Psalm 141, 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands at the evening sacrifice. So that's what this was for Zechariah. He was at the evening sacrifice and the incense was going up. He's like, let, let my prayers be like that sweet smelling aroma that goes up to the Lord. In heaven, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, Scriptures say when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders. This might sound familiar to you. Twelve, twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, reaching, um, reach holding a harp. Or I'm sorry, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And it's not actually like there's these things floating there called prayers, right? It's Symbolism. The idea is that when we pray to God, God hears our prayers. He has them. He remembers them. So Zechariah is slowly solemnly walking with his bowl of coals and container of incense and he empties them out and he would have put the incense on top and then he would step back and as custom would have been they would have bowed down and they would have prayed to god think about it he's afraid in some sense he's got to have fear because he's so close to the holy of holies. probably the closest he's ever been in his entire life right to this place where they've been taught the presence of god is and then he sees on the right side of the altar what An angel. And that struck fear in his heart as well. Verse 11. Good. Luke chapter 1, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. You're Prayer has been heard your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So all these people are praying outside. There's a multitude of people praying outside and John is in here and he would be would have been praying before the Lord and an angel appears. And he's scared, right? That's what happens when you see an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God from heaven, right? It's it's, it's a holy angel. And the angel says, "Don't be afraid." Why? Because God has heard your prayer. Now, what was his prayer? It doesn't actually say this was your prayer. It gives some indication here. We do know that the people outside would have been praying for the Messiah to come. They would have been praying, Lord, send your Messiah. And actually, we know that from custom that the the Jewish priests would have gone in there, and that would have been their prayer as well. They were praying for the king to come. But also, verse 13 says that, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And what is it? Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. So there was actually a prayer that they had, maybe at that moment, probably their entire life, which was, God, give us a son. It's interesting that both those prayers, for the Messiah to come, and also for them to have a son, God answers in one. And he wasn't the Messiah, but he was a forerunner for it. That's what the angels tells him there. And so throughout... His ministry, Zechariah's ministry, as a priest, he longed for and prayed for the Messiah to come. But with that political environment, it seemed impossible. There's not going to be a king that's going to be able to come and conquer Rome, right? And throughout Zechariah's life, he desired and prayed for a son. But his wife's old now. She can't have a son. So he's facing two very impossible situations. And so what does he do? Well, he's praying. The people outside are praying. And they're praying with humility the angel says you you prayed you've prayed for this and now you're going to have a son and let me kind of examine here the type of prayer I think that Zechariah prayed. We don't see here uh, a prayer that was that was pride filled and demanding It wasn't like God give me this because I deserve it and because I've done so much like Zechariah's prayer is one of humility and I'll show you why we believe that in a second. But his his prayer is one of humility, and therefore God's answer is one of mercy. In fact, you know what the name John means? It means God is merciful. This is interesting. His name, uh, John's name, the name the angel told him to to give to the baby, was God gives mercy. So this baby was a demonstration that God gives mercy. And he was giving mercy to this couple. In fact, the word mercy in the New Testament... It's Elios, And I want to kind of show you in this passage and the rest of the, uh, some of the passages where this word mercy shows up. Look at verse 57, John chapter 1, verse, or, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. And so this is when actually Elizabeth has the baby. In verse 57, the Bible says, Luke chapter 1, did I say that? In verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son, and her her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great what? Mercy. That's the same word right there. And they rejoiced with her. So notice the birth of her baby was identified as a demonstration of God's mercy. They recognized we don't deserve this. We've not done anything for this. This is God's gift to us. God has given us something we don't deserve. And on Friday, they had a, we had a birth of a baby in this church, right? The tallies rejoice to have a baby. And one of the prayers I prayed for them when I, when I went with them to, when I met with them for the baby uh, surgery, is I prayed Luke one fifty seven, 57, got to pray that you'll have mercy upon this baby. And that's usually what I do when I meet with people in the hospital and pray, God, give them mercy, right? Because we don't deserve anything from God. And anything he gives us is his mercy. And so they were recognizing that, God, you showed mercy by giving us this baby. In fact, look down in verse number 70 of Luke 1. Zechariah, he says this as well. His prayer was a prayer for mercy. Look at verse 70. It says, and as he spoke by the mouth. And this is Zechariah speaking. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. This is speaking of the Lord's uh, communicating his word. Verse 71 That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show us the what? Mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So we understood this guy was going to be the one that was going to come before Christ. And... For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Notice how Zechariah connects God's answer with his mercy. Zechariah talked to God. So how would he have talked to God if he was longing for the mercy of God? He would have spoken to the Lord in humility, right? He would have come to God saying, I am. Do not deserve anything, but I'm asking for this request in your mercy. And it's important for us to remember that when we are praying and we're praying for the impossible, we're praying for something, in a, we're in a very difficult situation, we're praying, God, give us your mercy. It's a prayer of humility. It recognizes that God is sovereign, it also recognizes that God is good. When you pray for God's mercy, you're saying, God, I know you're in charge of everything. God, I also know you're good. And will you allow this to be a gift from you? And a humble prayer like this was prayed by a man named Job. The Lord gives. and The Lord takes away. But no matter what, what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. So if God gives it, God, we praise you. Thank you for your mercy. If he doesn't, God, we praise you. Because we recognize anything we get from God is his kindness to us. In 2007... Uh, we, Dana, uh, was pregnant with our second child and I can remember I almost actually went to Israel that year for some reason, the last moment I wasn't able to go. I think I didn't have enough money and, uh, yeah, that happens with Israel, those kind of trips. And so the last minute I wasn't able to go. And so, um, I stayed home and it was a fortunate thing because Dana was 21 weeks pregnant. It's about four months early. And we went to the hospital and found out that she was in labor. And the doctor said, uh, You're probably going to have this baby. She was dilating and all that kind of stuff that happens when you're about to have a baby. And she was having contractions. And so, well, we already had a baby that was born at 26 weeks. We knew that that was like three months early, you know. And in that situation, they were saying she might live, she might not. You know, she's definitely going to have problems. God had showed mercy and she doesn't, but then she lived, Isabel. But this 21 weeks, they're like, if she's born, she's not living like this is not going to happen. Like she's not going to be able to survive this. And so I can remember one of the passages that the Lord uh, gave me was. Let's see if I can find it here. Maybe I don't have it up here. Was Philippians 2 verse 27. This is Paul speaking. And he said, talking about Epaphroditus, his friend, he says he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me to sm- spare me sorrow upon sorrow. And I can remember taking this verse and just saying, God, please give mercy to this, this little child. I was in seminary, and I was finishing up my seminary, and I was writing tree trackers. I was a pastor, and now we had a one-and-a-half-year-old. So it was kind of a crazy life. And they're like, and you're, it's summertime, so that's the busiest time of the year for, like, me, because I was the children's pastor, so I was doing VBS that summer and all those kind of things. And they're like, your uh, wife's going to be on bed rest completely laying down the entire time until she has the baby, which is going to be probably pretty soon. So she's not allowed to get up at all. So I can remember thinking, this is an impossible situation. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that seemed pretty impossible. And uh, and so we went to the Lord and said, God, we don't deserve anything from you, right? We, God, we just ask for your mercy in this situation. I can remember the doctor, we'd go see him once, maybe every other week, and the nurse would come and then he, well, your baby's about to be born, you're dilating more, you know, it's it's probably going to be in a couple of days, maybe next week sometime. And then that kept happening. We, we asked the doctor, what, what does the date need to be that we need this baby born? Like, what's the ideal day, you know? And he said, well, 36 weeks, which is August 15th. So we were at 21 weeks. So we had to make it to, and you know, she had to make it to 36 weeks. So every week, this is kind of what's happening. When you face impossible situations and you're praying for God's mercy, a few things happen. One, first of all, you realize you're not in control, Right. You have a time in your life when you're kind of like, oh, I'm like life's going pretty good. I got it all together. And then it all like goes, whoa, I don't I don't have control. God, God, you're in control. You're the sovereign. You're the king. So God, my idea of of control was an illusion. So God, I submit to you as my as my sovereign. And also another thing that happens is you become instantly completely dependent upon God, right? And you should have been the before that, but that moment you're like, I, God, I need you. I need you. And I can remember just all those things that were happening in life. And I can remember sitting down next to Dana while she was laying there on the couch and just praying, God, give us, give us strength. God, we need you during this time. I don't know how we're going to do this. The other thing that happens is he changes you, right? Because you start going to him and saying, God, I need you. And you start growing. And one of the greatest works I think God does in our life through this is he makes you more like Jesus Christ. And so we went throughout that whole summer, asked for God's mercy, woke up on August 15th. Went to the hospital and had a baby. And I can remember that just, yeah, it's kind of the emotional response to that. It's like, why? Like, why did God do that? You know what? It wasn't because of anything I had done or Dana had done. God just chose to show mercy. And God shows mercy in many different ways. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So confidently go to him, knowing as a child of God, you can pray to him. He hears you so you may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We must pray with confidence that God hears us, but pray in humility. Not saying, I don't deserve anything from you, God, but I'm asking this of you. God, will you please show mercy to us? And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, their request for God's mercy was withheld for years. And then finally, it was too late. But their request for God to show mercy was, was answered later on in their life, which actually showed God's greater mercy. You could say it this way. God was merciful through their life. And then God chose to show, display his mercy in a greater way later on in their life. There's many times that we pray to God. We ask for God's mercy and God's mercy is displayed in, in different ways. For for David, he was praying for his son to live. Remember this? He's praying for his son. And the people asked, the servants asked, well, you know, after his son, they prayed for him and his son had passed away. They asked, well, what's going on? Why are you, why have you washed yourself? And now why are you eating and not mourning anymore? And, and what did David say? He said, well, while the baby was sick, I was praying for what? I was praying for mercy. And actually, this, this, this Hebrew word, when it's translated in the Greek and the on the um septuagint it's interesting this is the exact same new testament word for mercy so he was praying for mercy but you know what it's interesting that god chose to work in a different way in his life and he had to still trust that god was a god of mercy and grace in fact david or uh, i should say uh, paul the apostle was praying for god to show mercy in his life right say god please remove this thorn in the flesh in Second Corinthians, chapter number twelve, but God said no. Like my grace is sufficient for you. So when we're faced with the impossible, we got to keep praying. Pray with humility. God is sovereign. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten. He has a plan, and we have to trust him that his way is best. His, his way is the best way to bring glory to himself and to, to do what he wants to do in you. That is to make you more like Jesus Christ. God is good, and he, he shows mercy. And Sometimes God's mercy, the way he, that you're praying for it to be given to you, isn't given to you right away. Sometimes it's delayed. Sometimes it, it never comes in the form that you think it should come. But God's way is always best. And God will always do what brings him glory, will make you more like Christ. And the last way, how should a per- you respond when faced with the impossible, lock on to God's word by faith. So you go walk, talk, and lock. <laughs> Decide to be a poet this week. Maybe you can remember that. Look, at, look down in verse number 14. Uh, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared as you listen to that did you notice the promises that god gave to zechariah through this angel i mean here an angel of god is speaking to him a messenger of god giving him a message like you're gonna have a baby you're, you're it's so certain you're gonna have joy like he's gonna be great before the lord he's gonna be filled with the spirit of god Many people, I mean, here's the plan. Many people are going to turn from their ways. They're going to trust in the Lord. He's going to be the one to go before. He's the Messiah. I mean, this is awesome, like awesome promises from God rooted in the Old Testament and God's word in the Old Testament. So how should he have responded to this? Well, probably the same way Mary did. How did Mary respond? Look over in verse 38. What did Mary, how did she respond when she heard the word of the Lord? Verse 38, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Like I believe God's word. How does he respond? Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. I mean, humanly speaking, it kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, we're not able to have children anymore. But how should he ever responded? He should have believed God's word. He should have locked on to the truths of God's word and said, I believe this. In fact, verse 19, the angel answered him and said, I'm Gabriel. Yeah, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. Like, you didn't believe me. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah did not lock on to God's words and cling to them by faith. He wanted proof, like, okay, show me how this is even possible. Because, no, Zechariah, it's possible because God said it's possible right when god says it's possible we trust the god of the impossible how do we know or how did how could he have known he should he should have just trusted the words of god and what was his punishment for that what did god do to i should say this way what was the sign god gave him he wouldn't be able to speak and actually i believe he wasn't able to speak or hear in fact if you look down in verse 62 we see that they were making signs after the baby was born, and they were trying to figure out what his name was going to be. They were making signs to him so he could understand. So it sounds like he was not only mute, but he's also deaf. So the result of his disbelief in God's words was he was shut off from the world, right? Many times people who have these kind of disabilities, people pretend like they're invisible. It's not good, but it sometimes happens. So this is what was happening to him. He face the reality that he was not going to be able to enjoy the 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 vision that he had the the revelation that he had from god he wouldn't be able to tell people about it he would have to make signs and hopefully people would understand in that way in fact look down in verse number 21 it says the the people were waiting for zechariah he was in the temple remember he would have tried to exit quickly because he was it was a, a time in the temple of, of holiness and they actually had this sphere in the temple that as a priest if they were in there offering these um these offerings on the altar of incense that if they were to think a, a wrong thought or a sinful thought that they could drop dead in the presence of God. So he would have tried to exit. So it's like, why is he not exiting? What's going on? So that's what the people are confused about right here. So they, verse 21, they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And then when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs of them and remained mute. So. God's word became true in this. So you think at that moment, he thought, well, maybe God's word is true. (laughs) My wife is going to have a baby. This is obviously happening to me. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. So God's word came true. His promise was true. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Think about what it would have been like if he would have believed God's words, right? I mean, he could have come out of the temple rejoicing, singing, right? Look what happened to me. I saw an angel. Let me tell you what it looked like. That had have been pretty cool. Imagine the next nine months for Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Because he couldn't hear or speak. I mean, just imagine him coming home, you know, and Elizabeth, oh, it's good to see you. Are, what, are you okay? Zechariah, what's going on, you know? You're not speaking. And some women here, are like my husband, does that anyways. <laughs> but, but this was actually this is actually a sign from God, right? But I mean, think about it. Uh she wouldn't he would not have been able to rejoice when Mary came, right? Mary came and and actually Elizabeth screams out. You verse forty-two, you are blessed among women, right? He couldn't hear that. I mean, can you imagine him coming home and having to try to describe what happened and what I don't she can't probably understand very much. Maybe you had to write it down. Verse forty six and forty five, Mary came and sang her song, right? He couldn't hear that. He was in the corner, not able to listen and not able to speak. He didn't he wasn't able to uh hear the amazing thing that happened to Mary, that she was gonna have a baby and she was a virgin. Now I was thinking about this, like imagine the hand gestures for that, right? How do you how do you describe like Mary, she's gonna have a baby? It's like, a what? No, she married? No, she's not married. Forget about it. Sit in the corner, Zechariah. You know, I was imagining like this is probably a hard thing to describe a miracle like this. But the point is, how much better would it have been if he would have just believed God's word? And when you're faced with the impossible, first, we need to remember God. He's spoken to us in his word. We have to go to his word and find his promises and find his truth and lock on to his word. God has promises. He wants you to lock on to his word by faith. So, so walk with God, walk in righteousness, take the next right step. You're, you're like, I'm in a difficult, impossible situation. Just do the next thing God wants you to do by faith. Talk with God in humility, ask him, God just give me mercy in this area. But God, you give, you take away, bless your name, whatever you choose. But I'm asking for mercy in this area. Then lock on to God's word. That's why it's so important for us to daily church to be in his word right? Because we have to be clinging like Zechariah should have done. We should be clinging to the words of God. Like I'm going to believe this with all my life. If God says it, that settles it. It's what it is. I'm going to believe it. You might say, well, I'm going through some impossible situations. What are some verses I should cling on to? So what I want to do is I'm going to throw some verses up here on the screen. And if, and if you're going through right now a situation, you're like, it seems impossible. What I want you to do is I want you to just write down one of these verses. And this week, I want you to lock onto it the whole week. You pray it to God, you you believe what it says, and you walk with God this week and talk to God this week and lock on to his word. And one of them might be, you might be a person here and you say, you know what? I've been trying before God to be good enough. Like I've been trying to make God happy with me, but I just feel like he's not. Like I don't feel like I'm good enough for God. Well, you know what? That's true. You're not. And you can't be good enough for God, Right? Like this verse actually, the truth of this verse is that you actually uh, can't be right with God by being righteous or trying to do righteous works. It says he saves us not because of our righteous works that we've done. So it's not because of your good works. And you might think, well, I've been trying hard. Well, you need to stop trying hard to be good enough for God and trust his work that he's done for you. Like he's the righteous God and he gives you his righteousness. He gives you mercy when you ask him when you trust in his son jesus and what he's done for you so you need to lock onto the truth that he will give you mercy if you ask him right and so maybe you're a person here and you say i have an impossible problem of sin in my heart well only jesus can forgive your sin and take care of that impossible problem and give you mercy maybe you're a person in here and you're facing a terrible affliction like job remember job said he knows god knows the way i take and when he's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Lock on to this. God knows your way. He knows your way. He has your life planned out. Like he's doing a work in you. And one of the greatest works he's doing in you is he's refining your heart like gold. He's refining you like gold. Maybe you're a person in here and you're saying, I just don't know how. God's going to provide for me and my family. Lock on to this truth. God owns everything. But my God Shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He owns everything. He knows your need. And he promises if you follow him by faith, he'll take care of it. Or maybe you're a person here and you're just facing trouble in your soul. And you're just so so much in turmoil. Maybe even facing depression. And you're like, I just want peace in my heart. Lock onto this verse. You keep him in perfect peace. There's the peace you want whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you, God. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord God is an an everlasting rock. So so cling to this. God is a rock. You can trust him. He's in charge. He's doing what is best. So keep your mind on him, and he will give you his peace. Or maybe this one right here. Maybe you're feeling lost. Maybe you're feeling pressed down. You need to lock onto this that God cares for you. God loves you, Right? In, in possible situations like this, and we feel like maybe God doesn't like me anymore. Maybe I'm not his child anymore, right? But no, if you're a child of God, God loves you. We can cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. He cares for you. And maybe maybe you take another verse this week and, and maybe you go to the Psalms and look at those scriptures. But the point is, take God's word, cling to it by faith. Zechariah and Elizabeth faced a lifetime longing that seemed impossible for God to fulfill. But God did the impossible. And when the Virgin Mary was told she'd have a child. What does the scripture say? And behold your relative. Verse 36. Elizabeth in her old age. Is going to have a son. Or has conceived a son. And she's in his sixth month, her sixth month. With her who is called barren. For nothing. Will be. Impossible. With God. You know what gave encouragement to Mary that God did something impossible in her or was going to do something impossible in her? That God did something impossible in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah. In impossible situations, remember, God is at work. Nothing is impossible with him. And we have an impossible task at this church, right? But I mean, we want to see people in this community, this community turn from their own way of thinking Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. That's impossible, right? So we have an impossible task here. You face impossible tasks on a daily basis. What should we do? How should we respond? Walk with God, talk with God, and lock on to his words. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Father, we're so thankful that you're at work in our life. Think about Zechariah and Elizabeth and I imagine that for many years, they had a. They wondered, "Are you working in our life? Are you hearing our prayers?" But you were. And God, you heard their prayers and you answered them. And you were merciful to them. Thank you for that. Thank you for the testimony that we see of them. And I pray for us in this room as we, on a daily basis, many of us are facing situations that seem I, I just don't know how I can figure this out. It's impossible. I think that's actually where you want us, God. I think you want us right there. So we'll go to our knees before you. We'll depend upon you and we'll cry out to you. And so I pray that you'll help each of us to examine our hearts, where we're at with you. Are we, are we walking righteously? Are we, are we truly trusting you? And also, God, help us to become humbly before you. Give us your mercy. And I pray that, God, we will be people of the book, we'll be people that lock on to your truth and depend upon it in our lives are made to bring you glory and enjoy you. And I pray for us as a congregation this week, God, enable us to do that and help us to trust the God of the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen.